What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you? That's what Tozer said. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when you think about... He said, God, I'm putting in Jesus because Jesus is God. But what comes to mind when you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. Why? Why is it so important? Well, I hope we see tonight why it is so, so important. Um, At the outset, I know... I, man, I was getting up and I was thinking, at the outset, I know I'm going to fail up here tonight. Because what I'm going to talk about is Jesus, and there's just no way that I could possibly ascribe the worship and the glory and the honor due to Christ tonight that I need to. And that's a humbling thing. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Because I can try, but we know that there's no way I'm going to get there. There's no way we're going to get here. But I hope that somehow pointing you in the direction of Him, that you'd take your eyes off me up here and that you'd look to Christ, that you'd go to the Word, that you somehow would see Him in a new and fresh light. I'll tell you, you might not learn a whole bunch of new things tonight. There's going to be some nights where we really teach. I mean, we really get into it. And I'll teach you some stuff tonight, hopefully. But more than that, I hope you remember some stuff you've forgotten. A lot of you guys grew up in a Christian home. Some of you didn't, but... Some of you guys know stuff about Jesus, but you've stored it away somewhere in the past. And I want to bring some of that to memory. I want to jog your memory. And I want to throw more in there. And I want, by the time we get done tonight, for you to have such a high view of Christ that you walk out of here just in awe of our Lord. Just taken with Him. But I know, I mean, I said I'm going to fail, but we're going to go after it. We're going to really, really look at Christ. Before we do that, I want to pray. I'm helpless in myself, and and I need to pray. God, thank You so much for just allowing us to worship for a while. God, to sit and to stand and to sing about You. The Lamb who is worthy, the Lamb who is slain. To make a joyful noise to You. God, and I realize now as we worship You through teaching that that if you don't move, Father, nothing happens. God, and I am in desperate need of you. Fill me with your Spirit now, Lord, not for my sake, but for yours, that you'd get glory, that you'd be glorified, Lord, that your name would be lifted high, high and lifted up, Lord. Lord, and for those who are here, God, would you wake up, wake up, men and women. God, if they're blind to the light, open their eyes. Wake up, old dead bones, Lord, like Ezekiel said. Raise them up. Father, if they are saved, renew them. Revive them, Father. Wake them up. It's you who do it, Lord. Use your servant now. God, I beg in this time you would. Thank you for it, Lord. Amen. We're going to look at three things tonight. Four, rather. One, we're going to look at Christ, where the world's view of Christ, how the world, how the people around us in the world see Christ. Two, we're going to look at the traditional Christian view of Christ. When I say Christian, I mean Christian as in, not a biblical sense even, but the two billion people on earth that call themselves Christian, some of whom are really following Christ, some of whom are not. Finally, we're going to look at what Christ says about Christ, what the Bible says about Christ. Because it doesn't so much matter what I say about Him, does it? But it does matter what he says about himself. And finally, we'll look at that and how it applies to our lives. I feel like either we're caught in two places in our lives. I feel like myself, either I'm caught thinking 
that everyone believes in Christ around me, that I'm just in a bubble, and I think, how can people not believe this? Everyone around me has got to believe this. This is true. This is good. This is pure. This is holy. I've got to be walking around. People just got to know this. Or, I know that's not right. Or, I think, I'm the only one who knows this. I'm the only one who's following Christ. And there's intelligent people don't follow Christ. I get stuck in that mindset. Do you know what I mean? I feel like you fall between one of those. Either you feel like, gosh, this is just like I'm a lone ranger. Or, everybody believes. And I think both of those are dangerous. So what is the world? Let me remind you what the world thinks about Christ. In order to do that, I just want to read what some people say. Some of these are on your sheet. Some of them aren't. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Gandhi. Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that ever infected the world. Voltaire. John Lennon said this, We're more popular than Jesus Christ now. I don't know which will go first. Rock and roll or Christianity? Ezra Pound, a heroic figure not wholly to blame for the religion that's been fostered on him. Richard Harris, Jesus is just a word I used to swear with. Jesus is an example. We have other examples, including many of our ancestors as role models who understood the inner meaning of our orientation. Malcolm Boyd. I want to tell you guys these names because I want you to know it's not me who says, says these things. There was a time where I might have. A lot of the powerful religious leaders from Jesus to Buddha, Tibetan monks to Tibetan monks, they're really talking about the same things. Love and acceptance, the value of friendship and respecting yourself so you can respect others. Jenna Malone. Dangerous words. I almost, I almost hesitate to read these. He might be described as an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. Prince Philip. Larry King on the CNN talk show host. You guys know who Larry King is? Sure you do. He was once asked who he he would most want to interview if he could choose anybody through all of history. Who do you think he said? Who do you say? Jesus. He said, Jesus. Questioner asked him, why would you like to interview him? King replied, Larry King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Next quote, Jesus was a brilliant Jewish stand-up comedian, a phenomenal improviser. His parables are great one-liners. Camellia Pagalia. As a child, I, re- I received instruction in both the t- Bible and the Talmud. I am a Jew. I am enthralled with a luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Albert Einstein, physicist and professed atheist. Albert Einstein believed in a historical Jesus, but not that of the Christ, the risen Lamb. I looked that quote up for verification. There's a lot of things said about Albert Einstein that he didn't say. He did say that one. Buddha never, listen to this one. Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be Jehovah. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus Christ claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search of the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claimed to be holy. Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. And Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. No one knows who wrote that one. I think of Psalms 2. 
It says, why do the nations conspire against the people? And the, or excuse me, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Capital A, anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. Throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have instilled my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them into pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun or pay homage to the sun. Submit to the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Then it ends with this, Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Those are strong words, aren't they? Of David. I think of when Jesus raised Lazarus out of the dead. He wept over Him. Not over Lazarus, He was about to raise Him, but He wept for the people, for the, for the accumulated burden of the people. Luke 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He said, get up, Lazarus. He thanked the Lord that he heard him for the edification for the people around him. And then what happened? What did the Pharisees do? They witnessed Jesus raise someone from the dead. Get up and walk and come out of the grave. And what happened? I've heard a lot of you guys, people say to me all the time, if I could just see Jesus, I'd believe. If I could just see him do something. If he would just turn that something into a chicken or any of those things. But he raised someone from the dead, and the Pharisees say, we've got to find a way to get rid of this guy. Look at what they say. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We've got to get rid of this guy, and I don't care who he is. Psalms 14.1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Guys, this is mankind. Plain and simple. This is us in our natural state. There's none who do good. Through the old, the new, the Bible acclaims this over and over again. The Bible says we suppress the truth in our ungodliness. Romans 1. But, but, lest you think too much of yourself, lest you think you've got it all together, that you're holy, Titus writes, or Paul writes to us in Titus. What's he say? Titus 3, he reminds us you yourself were once disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various passions and pleasures, spending your life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's how you and I used to be. Why are we not that way anymore? Because God rescued us, not because you squirmed your way out of it. Right? You were unable to do that. That's how we used to be. That's how some of you used to be. And that may be how some of you still are. That's certainly how I was. Disobedient and deceived. Two. Two. Christ's treatment of Christians. Christ's treatment by Christians. Excuse me. Christians, again, I'm, when I say Christian, I'm talking even in a, in a broad sense. I don't want to confuse you about this, but, uh, but I really, i got to believe that we become desensitized by the term. It is biblical in every sense. A follower of Christ. But Christian, when I say this, I mean what comes to mind when you walk up to your unbelieving friend and say Christian. Okay? A.W. Tozer says, and I quote, Salvation comes not by accepting the finished work or deciding from, 
for Christ. It comes by believing on the Lord Jesus, the whole living, victorious Lord, who as God and man fought the fight and won it, accepted our debt as his own and paid it, took our sins and died under them and rose again to set us free. This is the true Christ, and nothing else will do. But something less is among us. Nevertheless, we do good to identify it so that we might repudiate it. That something is a poetic fiction, a product of imagination, a modulin religious fantasy. It is a Jesus, gentle, sweet, shy, almost effeminate, and marvelously adaptable to whatever society he might find himself in. He is cooed over by women, disappointed in love, patronized by pro-teams, and recommended by psychiatrists. He is used by man, means to, he's used as a means to almost any carnal end, but he is never acknowledged as Lord. These quasi-Christians follow a quasi-Christ. They want his help, but not his interference. They will flatter him, but never obey him. Where real repentance is, there is obedience. For repentance is not only sorrow for past failures and sins, it is a determination to begin now to do the will of God as he reveals it to us. A.W. Tozer. You guys see what he's saying here? Guess when Tozer wrote this? I guess Tozer died, I believe, in 1969. So he wrote it sometime before then. I, I really got to believe that this is even more true today. And why do I say it's true? Because I see it in myself. I do not want to give the Lord of the Bible his proper place in my heart. It's idolatry. Why? Because I've made Jesus into someone he's not. I've made Jesus into exactly how I want Him to be so I can worship Him the way I want to worship Him. Carnegie Simpson in The Fact of Christ writes, Instinctively, we do not class Him with others. I love this quote. When one reads His name in a list beginning with Confucius and ending with Goeth, we feel it is an offense less against orthodoxy than against decency. Jesus is not one of the group of the world's great. Talk about Alexander the Great, Charles the Great, Napoleon the Great, if you will. Jesus is a part. He is not the great. He is the only. He is simply Jesus. Nothing could add to that. He is beyond our analysis. He confans our canons of human nature. He compels our criticism to overlap itself. He awes our spirits. There is a saying of Charles Lamb. It's on your sheet that if Shakespeare was to come into the room, imagine this, if Shakespeare was to come into the room, we should all rise up to meet him. But if that person, capital P, was to come in, we should all fall down and try to kiss the hem of his garment. And that's what I'd be doing, wouldn't you? Now, wouldn't that be something? Now, we'll get to that kind of Jesus. How many of you guys have heard the quote of C.W. Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, excuse me? Liar, lunatic, Lord, you familiar with that argument? Yeah, C.S. Lewis kind of started that, and then I believe it was uh, maybe McDowell that kind of perfected that. But C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about who? Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a poached egg or... Or he would else be the devil of hell. You make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and call him as a, and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. And you say you're serious about this, and you are absolutely right. I take this so seriously. I do because Jesus takes this seriously. And I wonder if I even take it as seriously as Jesus does. He takes himself seriously. He takes his name seriously. How many of you have been reading through the Gospels ever and come across something the disciples say about him? Probably in particular, Peter. I feel like I'm like Peter sometimes. And Jesus is going along and he's, he does something incredible or he says something incredible to him and they say something just off the wall ludicrous. You know what I'm saying? Like Jesus will just say, Lord, don't wash me. Lord, what are you doing? Like he's rebuking God or something. And when I read that, I go, come on, Peter, man, wake it up. Wake it up, Peter. What are you doing, <laughs> fool? Stupid. <laughs> but then I feel like God reminds me, as soon as I do that, Tanner, that is exactly what you do. And it is. I rob Jesus of so much. I take advantage of him. Sometimes when I go to prayer, all I do is ask. Three, and most importantly, the Bible's view of Christ. I can read off quotes. I can do all these things. I can say what people say. I can say what I want to say. But does it really matter? No. Because in the end, it's not what I say. It's what the Bible says about Christ. It's what Christ reveals about Himself. The Bible's view of Christ or Christ's view of Christ. We don't have time to do this justice here tonight. We don't. I, I wish we did. But we'd be here till, well, 2030 or something. Here's what I'll say, and wrap your minds around this. I want you to become Christocentric in your thinking, in your reading, in your prayer, in your thoughts, in your life, in your meals at dinner. What do I mean by that? Christocentric, central in Christ. Why? Because that's what the Bible is. How often do we sort through the Bible, and when we think of Jesus, think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? Does that come to your mind ever? Be honest with me, it does, huh? When you think of Jesus, you think, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the beginning of Acts and part of Revelation. But that's not true, is it? It's not true at all. Christ has revealed Himself. And what I want, I long tonight, here's what I want tonight. For you to leave here with an expanded view of Christ. So when you think of Christ, you don't just think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes, you think of that, and you know Him by those, because that's one of the places, probably mainly, where He revealed Himself. But you think of Christ's preeminence. You think of God before time. You think of God before He became incarnate. His pre-incarnate glory when, when what? When you weren't even around. When it was God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit in perfect communion in perfect harmony before the beginning of time. Do you ever think about that? Not enough, because I don't think about it enough, but that's probably because I'm so focused on me. But Christ before time, pre-incarnate glory, and you won't ever, I promise, listen, you won't ever appreciate His incarnation, Christ in the flesh, until you begin to understand His preeminence. Christ before the Gospels, Christ in the Old Testament, and even... Christ before Genesis. Two, His humiliation. This is His incarnation. This is His earthly life. This is His crucifixion. 
This is when he got his beard pulled out. This is when he got spit on. This is when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. What do you mean when he said that? We don't really have a grasp of that. What if you said that to a Jew? You know how high they hold Father Abraham? What does it mean when he said, before Abraham, I am? What comes to your mind when you hear, I am? I am. What comes to mind when you hear that? Does your mind flash back to Exodus? And Moses said, who shall I tell him sent me? What's Jesus say? What's God say? Tell him, I am sent you. What's Moses looking for? Someone to compare him. Um, God, uh, I can tell him, God, you're like this. There's no one that he compare himself with. He just says, I am. Tell him, I am sent you. I am who I am in myself. I'm not like Zeus. I'm not like anything else. I am. I am of myself. Let me tell you, it has changed the way I read the Old Testament. Absolutely. We'll come back to that. The exaltation is number three. This is His ascension, His seating at the right hand of God. This is His second coming, and this is what we have forward to look forward to. His eternal glory. The beautiful Son of God, exalted in glory, in beauty. We don't talk about Christ's beauty enough. I mean, the beauty of Christ. That's why I love singing songs sometimes. The beauty of Christ. Christ in the Old Testament. Christ in the burning bush. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. The two get thrown in the furnace. And there's one more walking around there. Who do you think's walking around in there? Who's walking around in the furnace with them? I'll tell you who I think it is. I think it's Christ. Now, everybody doesn't agree on that, but when you read Isaiah 6, who should you think of? In the year of King Uzziah's death, death I saw the Lord high and lifted up, exalted, and the robe of his, or the, tra- the train of his robe filled the temple. Who is that? Who do you suppose that is? Well, Paul tells us later that's Jesus. Do you know that? And when I found that out, that blew my mind. I went, that is the Lord that I am worshiping? And Isaiah falls down and says, woe is me. I am, damn me. I am damned. Woe is me. That's what it means. Shuts himself off and says, I don't, I don't know what to do. I tell you, I'm reading through Leviticus right now. And uh, how many of you guys have read Leviticus? Many of you? Yeah, good. I, I love Leviticus. And uh, I'll be honest with you, it bugs me sometimes when people come down on Leviticus, but I used to do that. And I used to do that because I never understood it. I'm reading through Leviticus, and I'm on Law 500. And, and, and that's how I used to think. But when you begin to look for Christ in everything, it changes everything. And I love Leviticus now. I do. Because it points me to Christ. Do you see that? It changes the way you read the Bible. So go and study your Bible and study it Christocentrically. Christ in everything, right? Not just in Isaiah 6, not just in the burning bush, but in the scapegoat, in the serpent that was raised in the desert, in the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the lamb who was to come. Do you guys see where I'm going with that? Does that make sense? I love that stuff. I never thought I'd love Leviticus, and I do. I love it, man. 
Colossians 1, 15 through 28. This is where I'm going to go real quick. If you have a Bible, I'd appreciate it if you'd go there. Um, I would like it, we would like it if you'd bring your Bible on Friday nights. If you don't, that's fine. Um, you'll be asked to leave immediately, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, if you don't have one, tell me. We'll buy you one. I'd love to. Once you go to Colossians 1, though, you guys know where I'm going with this, don't you? Not a foreign passage. If I had to go to one passage, I would probably go to this to talk about Christ. Look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's after Genesis. After Genesis, Colossians. <laughs> Let me start again. I'm sorry. I ruined it. Listen, we're talking about Christ. Okay? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated, we talked about this earlier, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaging in evil deeds, yet... He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through the death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, we could spend all year on this, on 15 through, even 15 through 18. Matter of fact, we could spend our entire lives on it. There's enough here forever. So go home and read this. But let's talk about it quickly. Let's look at it. Let me give you some, some context. What was going on when Paul wrote this? There was two cults that had kind of come to, down, to town in the day. Cults, much like today, there was a Jewish cult and a, and a Greek cult. The Greek cult denied the deity of Christ. The Jewish cult denied the sufficiency of Christ and everything. So Paul is making a rebuke against that. He's saying, no, Christ is God and Christ is sufficient for everything that we do. So I want you to think about that as you read that. Keep that in mind. That's what Paul's driving at here. His sufficiency and his deity. Okay. Um, 15 through 19 is the person of Christ. 1 Timothy 4, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 1.17 tells us that God can't be seen. But what's verse 15 say? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So we get to see God through Christ. That makes sense? God is invisible. It tells us that He is spirit. He cannot be seen. But what is Christ? He's the image in the invisible God. Flip over to Colossians 2.9. Go over just a little bit. For in Him all the fullness of deity, in, of deity in bodily form. This is... God incarnate. And that's what Paul is saying over and over again. What's it mean when he says firstborn of all creation? What do you mean Christ was born long ago? What are you saying, Paul? This throws a wrench in everything. 
he saying? Firstborn of all creation. Because this is what cults believe, right? This is what the Mormons believe. That God came down to earth, had sex with Mary, and conceived Christ. So what is Paul driving at here? Well, the Colossians knew exactly what he's driving at. The word is protocos here, and it means not chronology, not time, but rank. So what is this saying? The firstborn over all creation. He is highest in rank, authority, and honor. It doesn't refer to time. It refers to rank. So God, the firstborn of all creation, He is highest in power and authority and rank. For by Him all things were created. That is to say, the material world and the spirit world. All angels, all everything. They thought Christ was an angel. That's what this cult was saying. Paul says He created angels. He created Satan. He created him as an angel and he fell. Not like Jehovah Witness teaches where they say he's an angel. Not like the Mormons say where he's brothers with Satan. No. Like the Bible says where he was and is and is to come and he is preeminent. He is authority in everything. He made angels. All things have created. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is maybe my favorite part of it. See, it's not just back in Genesis that God created everything. That's what I used to think. I mean, it is, right? He created, But He is creating. So He didn't just create back in Genesis 1. He now holds everything together. If Christ releases His grip on everything, what happens? Everything is lost. Not only did He create, He creates and He holds everything together. At time, in everything, His power holds everything everything together. He was before all things. He's also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself has come to have first place in everything. What does that mean? First place in everything. He is above all. Some of your Bibles read preeminence. And if you get one thing tonight, get the preeminence of Christ. I love this. I love the preeminence of Christ. He's first in everything. What does that mean? How does that look? What does that look like in my life? That means when I sit down to eat, the Christ is first. Let me move on. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Luke 5.8. Peter and Christ are in a boat. You guys know where I'm going with this? But Peter Simon saw, and it says, Peter Simon saw that, saw that. what's that? He threw his net over and he pulled in so many fish that the boat was going to sink. And what did he do? He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Go away from me. And that ought to be our reaction when we first see Christ. Lord, away from me. Was that not Isaiah's reaction? Was that not Peter's reaction? Luke 11:38 through 40 What's going on here? Christ is riding into Jerusalem. I know I'm going all over a bit. Stick with me. I know I'm jumping around, but I want you, by the time you get out of here, to see Christ in a way that you've never seen Him. Luke eleven thirty eight through 40 shouting, Blessed is the King, of, King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Because only God receives worship. So the Pharisees are saying, why are you doing Why are you letting them do this? What's God say? What's Jesus say? I love this. Guess what happens if we don't show up tonight? How much does that affect God? Think He's going to be all right? He is. You want to be humbled? He is sufficient in and of Himself. 
And it is a privilege to give Him worship. And it is proved here. Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, the rocks will cry out. The stones will cry out. Guys, if we don't come here and worship tonight, Christ will get worship for Himself. Amen? He does not need you. He does not need you. And He does not need me. But He wants us. And we have a privilege and a blessing to worship Him as such. Fourth, and stick with me, final, conclusion and application, the larger view of Christ. Where am I going with this? That we wouldn't make much of Christ, that His name would be lifted high. Guys, some of you guys, listen, I'm going to hit something touchy. But you can think too much of the Gospel. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I think too much of prayer. And some of you guys out there think too much of the Bible. Matter of fact, I know people that love the Bible more than they love Christ. But you cannot think too much of Christ. It's impossible. Now, I know John 1 says, God is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. I know it's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I know the only reason I can pray is because the veil's been torn and the blood's been shed. But don't get lost in the what. Get lost in the who. Christ. You don't read the Bible to know the Bible better. You read the Bible to know Christ better. Christ in all, through all, of all, in all. That's what. That's why. The who, not the what. Not the method, but Christ. Okay? Man, Christ. Um, Nate, you want to get that video ready? Guys, some of us, we're stuck in bargaining with Christ and not bowing to Him. That's what Tim Ellis says. Tom Ellis, excuse me, bargaining with Christ instead of bowing to Him. I'm fed up with that in my own life. I go to prayer and I want to bargain with Christ. I remember when I was little, I got shot in the paintball, in the eye with a paintball, and I said, Lord, if you give me my eyesight back, I'll do anything. I just want to play football again. Lord, give me my eye back. You laugh, but you've done the same darn thing at one point in your life. (laughs) Haven't you? Let us stop bargaining with Christ and begin to bow to Him. There's something I wanted to tell you guys, but there's somebody who can say it to you better. His name's S.M. Lockridge. Some of you guys have heard this before. Nate, you want to play this? The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available.
animals of attempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he sees. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well-framed of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his word is lighter. I wish I could describe him. But yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Tyler couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! Yeah, that's my king. Man, S.M. Lockridge said it better than I ever could, but amen to that. Amen. Amen. That's my king. That's the God I worship. Not some shy, effeminate man, but the king of glory. John Gale said he should have the first place in the affection of our hearts, the contemplation of our minds, the desires of our soul, and the highest praises of our lips. He ought to have the preeminence in everything. Not to bargain with him, but to bow to him. I received a card once from a close friend. He's here. Here's what it said. If you meet and forget me, you've lost nothing. But if you meet Christ, Jesus Christ, and forget him, you've lost everything. Guys, if you don't, if you see me tonight and you never see me again, if you don't like me, if you don't like me, that's fine. But don't miss the message. If you forget me, that's fine. Forget me, forget my name. But if you forget Christ, you lose everything tonight. You forfeit everything. And you forfeit your soul. You've heard it said before, you cannot make Him Lord. He is Lord. But is He your Lord? Is He your Lord? Let me say it another way. He is preeminent. (coughs) He is first in all things, but does He have preeminence in your life? Does He have first place in your life? He is a Lord in need of nothing. He is all sufficient in Himself, but He desires fellowship with you. Can you believe that? I cannot. Pilate, before the mobs in Matthew twenty-seven twenty-two, said, What shall we do with this one who is called the Christ? What did they say? Crucify him. Matthew eight twenty-seven says, Jesus calms the storm and his disciples ask, What kind of man is it that even the winds and the seas obey him? Who was he? The master of the universe. Matthew twenty-two forty-two. Jesus says, Who do you think? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? You tell me whose son is he? He's God's son. That's who. 
John 1.18, one of my favorite verses. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Explained Him. This is where we get the Greek. Here's where we get the, the English translation, exegete. Who has exegeted? Who has explained? Who has described the Father? Jesus, His Son, the only one who's qualified to exegete Him. The only one who's qualified to describe Him. Where has He been? In eternities past, He's been in the bosom of His Father. What does that mean? What does that say? It means there's intimacy in His bosom. The bosom of the Father. John 13, 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of His disciples whom Jesus loved. This passage tears me up because I wish it was me. If there's anything that makes me envious in the Bible, it's of John. Forget, throw away that stupid picture of the disciples at the Last Supper you see everywhere. They were reclining, they were laying down around a table, they were taking the bread and dipping it in their mouths. And what, where was John? He had his head on Jesus' chest, and he was resting there. Not some weird thing. Intimacy with Christ. With the Lord of the universe. That's my King. The King of glory. The King of the Jews. The King of righteousness. The King of ages. And what did John get to do? Laid his head on his bosom. And he sat and he enjoyed his fellowship. And soon he would go to the cross. But for now, Jesus lays his head on his chest. I used to be so jealous of that, and I still am sometimes. Guess what I discovered while I was getting ready for this lesson? Isaiah 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, capital H, his arms, he will gather his lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who's that? That's you and me. We get to be in the bosom of Christ, not just John. But in eternity's future, we get to be in the bosom of Christ. i got a little bit here left, but stick with me. Guy's one of my best buddies in the world. He had his baby the other day, him and his wife. They were, up at a, they were in Bozeman, and we went to see him, and it just made my day. And they had that baby. Some of you know who it is. Neat, neat story. For another time, they had that baby, and you know what happened as soon as she had that baby? What'd they do with it? What did they do with that thing? They cut the umbilical cord. No, before they even did that, what did they do? They put it right on her chest. As soon as she was done, just right on her bosom, right on her chest. Those nurses know that it's good as soon as they can to get that baby on the skin of the mother. Isn't that something? Why do you think God has given childbirth? Before they even cut the cord, they stick that baby right on her chest. And that is the sort of affection and intimacy that we get with Christ. Most simply, Jesus put it this way. Who do you say that I am? So that's the question. Who do you say that I am? Mark 8.29. Who do you say that I am? Christ is a lion and a lamb. Lion of the tribe of Judah. He came the first time as a lamb. John says in 1, 29-36, he talks about the next day he saw Jesus coming. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Wouldn't you love to have been there when John said that? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He looked at Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
fellas, ladies, he came the first time as a lamb. He will come again, not as a lamb, but as a lion. James 2.19 says, Even the demons believe there's one God and they shudder. They're terrified. And we laugh at him and tell coarse jokes about him. How could we? Let me end with this. Revelation 5, 1-7. 11 through 13, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. This is the deed to the earth. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I, John, began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book and to look into it. John thought that the earth was going to be permanently ruled by Satan and he was weeping over it. And you and I would have been too. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So John here expects to turn around and see a lion of the tribe of Judah. What does he see? And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. The Greek here gives the picture of slaughter, a bloody, crucified Lamb, slaughtered, drenched in blood, as if slain, having seven horns, perfect power that shows, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Let's skip a few verses to 11. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Man from every tribe and tongue and nation, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. That's why we sing that song. The Revelation song. Did you know that? Psalms 2.12, I read it earlier. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Jesus in everything. Christocentric. Christocentric. Who do you say that He is? Is He a lunar a lunatic, a liar, or is he Lord? And if he is Lord, what bearing does that have on your life? You are faced with the reality of the king of the universe. You will be crushed under his wrath, or you will lie in the intimacy of his bosom. That's all, guys. Christ in everything. Band, why don't you come up and uh, close and, and worship? I'm going to pray. As you guys do that, actually, before we pray, we're going to sing one more song. We're going to sing the Revelation song. And I want you to sing it like Christ deserves to be sung about. Just Christ. I was going to, we were going to sing Sanctuary at the end, but I want not to focus on ourselves. I want you to look at Christ. I want you to just love Christ in this song, to sing it with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and to look to the Lamb who is slain, the Lamb who is worthy. Let us pray. Father, it is you who we need. And I know, Lord, that I have done a pitiful job of explaining you and forgive me in that, Lord. But in this direction, would we look to Christ? Father, and take what you have given us, your word, and plant it deep within us as we sing the song, Lord. May we lie in the bosom of the Lamb who was slain for our sins.